This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Valley coming at you this time again with my super-duper, incredibly awesome, esteemed, fantabulous, spectacular co-host, Andy Bailey. Um, before we get started, I just want to remind everybody to please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. They have gone up and creeped closer to 100 reviews. We really appreciate that. We really want to get to the century mark and beyond. And again, we appreciate all the subscriptions and the reviews as well. It just lets us know that you're listening. We have an abbreviated week here at Hardwood Knox. The All-Star break allowed us to do, well, I shouldn't say allowed, but it basically coaxed us into doing only one podcast this week. We're going to focus on the Eastern Conference playoff picture, predicting every seed there. So you can come yell at us when we are wrong. But to start, the question everyone really, really, really wants to know, how are you doing, Andy? I'm doing great. Um, as always, the, the intro brightens me up even more than I, than I come into this podcast, so that's always fun. Um, and I feel like I just I got to at least try to return the favor and go with Ripper Good Bloke for you. My uh, Australian friends have taught us that one. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, really quick, before we dove into the seeds, the news that Kawhi Leonard is probably done for the season is what Greg Popovich said, and then Woj came out reporting that he's been Kawhi Leonard's been medically cleared, but the onus is on him to decide whether he wants to play or not. And then Jabari Young of the San Antonio Express News said that Kawhi Leonard's still hoping to play again this season. What, what like what do you make of this situation? And I don't want to draw this parallel, but this is just so similar to was it 2012, 2013, where the Bulls were basically like Derrick Rose, you're medically cleared to play, you could play if you want, and then Rose had to decide not to play. This is getting weird. Uh, that's a that's perfect way. Sure. To, I, that's a perfect thing to say. <laughs> I think he, I don't remember when we said it, but I think both of us kind of. Uh, lean towards him not playing again for the rest of the year in an earlier episode mm-hmm. of the show. So that that wasn't terribly surprising to me. The stuff that you mentioned that Woj talked about, um, if I'm a Spurs fan, I guess I'd, I'd probably be a little concerned. I mean, it's, it's not nothing. Um, if he's willingly sitting out and then there was the earlier report that they might be at odds kind of and he's, he's going to medical opinions outside the team, it's just... There's enough there to start wondering, man, maybe is this relationship fractured a little bit? I mean, I never could have imagined that happening uh, as recently as like this summer. Uh, it just seemed like the perfect star organization relationship. And I guess it's just much more fragile than I than I realized. It must be a much – well, I mean, it, it, it always looks like a difficult thing with other organizations, but the Spurs have just been – like infallible 
in this regard for so long. So that's a little bit surprising. Um, but again, like I said, we've both kind of expected this, at least in terms of him not playing again this season. So that part's not surprising. It's just um, all the other stuff is starting to get, it's starting to add up to some weirdness. The the thing that I don't, a few things that stand out is, yes, it's just awkward and maybe the degree to how awkward will be more clear next year when he's on the verge of entering free agency. He has that player option for 2019, 2020, which everyone expects him to decline. I just, if it was another team, there are two ways to look at this. The Spurs are on pace to win almost 50 games anyway. I still think they're going to get the third seed in the West because you know I don't believe in the Timberwolves. At the same time, we give the Sixers shit for the lack of updates on Markel Fultz and this Kawhi Leonard thing has been equally bizarre. Greg Popovich at the beginning of the year kind of wasn't candid. He was opaque uh, opaque about it and was just saying, oh, he could come back soon. He should be back soon. But then he didn't come back soon. And we have the reports that the Spurs are baffled by the injury, just like Kawhi Leonard. We don't get these updates. And then Greg Popovich is all of a sudden just like, I'd be surprised if he played again this year. If it was another organization, we would be crapping on them. We are. We're doing it to the Sixers, and justifiably so. But I guess because the Spurs are the Spurs, and they're so successful, that blind faith is still sort of there. And I don't know if it's warranted in this situation, because we're talking about a top-five player. And yet, then again, they don't have a top-five player, and they're still on pace to have a top-six record in the league. The other thing I'd like to know, and I'm not a doctor, so obviously, why else would I, if I was a doctor, why the hell am I doing this? Um, the left ankle injury he had suffered because of Zaza Pachulia in the conference finals last year. Is there anything to like, he started compensating on the right side of his body after that, even after recovery or as he was rehabilitating from this quadriceps injury the, the first time. And now this is why it's, it's sort of a problem because so many people are like, they go back to the Pachulia gaff and whether or not that was intentional whether Petrulia knew where his foot was that was Kawhi Leonard's left ankle last year now it's his right quadriceps one that was or is a similar injury to what Tony Parker was dealing with and he came back he missed a ton of time but he came back not a-okay but he came back and there was a discernible timetable so it's just like you said it's all just very weird yeah I totally agree um and and yeah, I think overcompensation does contribute to injuries sometimes. Sometimes it even causes them. Um, maybe that's maybe it's just another example of the Warriors being light years ahead. <laughs> it was a planned hit by Zaza. Yeah, he knew all these dominoes <laughs> that have unfolded since. He just knew. Um, all right. So with that, do you you think the Spurs are they going to maintain the third seed? Do you think they're going to get bounced in the first round regardless? Um. Where did I have them in our predictions? I know I didn't have them third. I might have even had them sliding to fifth. I think you did. I think you had the Which Thunder going into fourth. Might sound crazy, but I it's just so packed in the West right now, especially with San Antonio's recent like semi-slide. So, um, yeah, I don't think they're going to hold on to third. And I, I hesitate to say they get bounced in the first round because it's the Spurs, and it's just like they seem to get out of there every year, but... I, I wouldn't be shocked if I saw Minnesota or Oklahoma City or even Denver like knock them out. It's, it's uh, we've kind of been waiting for this for years and years, but it feels like this might finally be the start of the end. And it took like a 
missing the entire season from their best player to, to get to that point. Um, and then again, like if he comes back full strength in the playoffs, then obviously that changes everything. But like we've, we've gone around a couple times now, it's just, it's certainly a weird situation. It makes it harder to forecast what's going to happen. Um, like through the playoffs with them. It, it really depends. It might even depend on their matchups. If you pit them against the Timberwolves, if for some reason Minnesota falls to fifth and the Spurs are fourth, uh, that is probably a good series for them. But if they have to go up against the Nuggets are sixth right now. and if the playoff, Yeah, that's who they face right now. Yeah, that'd be a bad matchup. Even having to face the Thunder, if that's the 4-5 matchup, that's not a good matchup I, for them. Yeah, I don't think they can keep up with Westbrook and George. The Blazers might be an okay matchup. That'd be a dangerous one. I, I do think your Jazz would probably be a more favorable matchup for them than a lot of these other teams. That's not even an insult to the Jazz. It's just that. No, I agree. Yeah. These two teams. Matchup wise. Yeah. yeah. But enough about the Western Conference and the Spurs. And we're definitely going to have to monitor the Kawhi Leonard situation moving forward, especially if he doesn't play this season and his relationship with San Antonio. Beyond that, though, it's time to predict the Eastern Conference playoff picture and. I don't know. I think I speak for you, but I'm definitely speaking for myself when I say I only feel good about roughly 25% of my seeding picks. <laughs> um, yeah, that's probably about where I'd put it, too, actually. The top three seems... I'm fairly confident in that top three. And then as it is most years, it's kind of a jumble after that. So we'll see where we each came down on these. Let's so let's try and group those top three together because we know the teams that are going to be involved. So who do you have as your your one through three? I've got Toronto first, um, and I, we can we can get into it more later why I have them all here. But the Raptors first, the Cavaliers second, and the Celtics third. So the only the only change there um, compared to what it is right now is I have Cleveland uh, hopping over the Celtics. I have the exact same order. There was I had like some inclination to be like, you know, let's let's put the Cavaliers first, but they trail at this recording the Raptors by six point five games and I, I can't disrespect Toronto like that. They've been they've been spectacular this year. Their bench has the highest net rating in the league, even higher than Golden State's second unit. Their second most used lineup is this all bench mob that's outscoring opponents by more than thirty one points per hundred possessions. And among Jeez. They're among the 130-something lineups that have logged at least 75 minutes this year. No lineup has a higher net rating than that. Uh, any, the How unit, many minutes does that lineup have? 162, I believe, around there. It's, it's not yeah. insubstantial. So it no, was, it was sure. more than twice as many as the minimum that I set. DeMar DeRozan's hitting threes. They're, I think I've said this to you before, and I still kind of find it amazing. The two teams to rank inside both the top five of offensive and defensive efficiency, Golden State and Toronto right now. They're, they're more versatile than we thought. They're getting a lot of good defense from Pirtle and, and Siakam. It kind of helps offset the lack of versatility that you get from a Nabaka valanciunas pairing defensively when you're talking about more of the mobile front court guys. I'm just super high on Toronto this year. I, I, I worry about them once they're in the playoffs because we've yet to have the trademark series from Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan at the same time. Like they're if you look at their effective field goal percentages in the playoffs since 2013-2014, both of them are about 5 percentage points below their regular season averages during that time. And that's something to be concerned about, but if you're going to have Kyle Lowry playing off the ball more, DeMar DeRozan perfecting his decision making out of the pick and roll, and he's going to shoot better than 34% from 3, that's going to be huge for you and I think 
you know, I'm not a fan of the people who are all like, remember my team, those fuss pots, and that's been the Raptors basically for a few years. I get it. It does get annoying, but at the same time, they deserve way more love than they're getting in these conversations this year. I totally agree. Uh, every point you made, I, I think in terms of regular season success, I, I, the bench is obviously more important there than it is in the playoffs because most teams will shorten their rotations a little bit. So, like you said, they have a six-and-a-half game lead on the Cavaliers right now. They're two games up on the Celtics, three games in the loss column on the Celtics, and with how deep they are, it would be I, w- I would be shocked to see them relinquish this lead at this point. Um, Jacob Goldstein, who... I just need to make sure. He's at Real Ball Insider and Nylon Calculus. He's a really smart guy. Um, he helped develop this thing called luck-adjusted lineup data, and I'm, I'm sure he's posted somewhere how, like his methodology, but I, I trust him. Like I said, he's a smart guy. Um, he posted the best three-man lineups in the entire NBA. Uh, they have to have a minimum of 750 possessions played. And... The best three-man lineup in the league, according to this luck-adjusted net rating, is Jakob Pertl, Fred Van Vliet, and DeLon Wright. And it's comfortably better than the second-place one, which is James Harden, P.J. Tucker, and Luka Bamute. Wow. Um, that that bench really is stacked. There, there's. I, I went through this the other day, too, in one of my stats threads, I think. Um, they had something like eight or nine players with more than two wins over replacement player this season. And the next closest team had like six. So it's just, they go so deep down the bench. Um, And I I think I probably am as guilty of this as anyone, but Dwayne Casey got a hard time from a lot of different media members over the last two or three years. I, I think he deserves a lot of credit for sort of Adjusting the way they play, especially offensively this year, I think they've embraced the three-pointer a little bit more than they have in years past. I think the ultimate example of that you pointed out is is DeMar DeRozan. He's shooting them more, and he's hitting them at a better rate. So there's just a lot to like with this team, and I think they're perfectly set up to to continue to sort of dominate the regular season. Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens in the playoffs, as it always is with the Raptors, but these are regular season predictions, and I'm pretty confident that they're going to hold on to that top spot. He deserves more Dwayne Casey coach of the year dap just because I, I just, I don't like you have a, a guy like Jonas Valanciunas, one of your highest paid players. And yet he's not going to be the guy who always closes games. He's not going to play a ton of minutes yet. You don't hear about gripes coming out of the locker room for this team. Even nope. Kyle Lowry as he was struggling at the beginning of the year and his bunny quotes, new role. It wasn't like this huge deal. I think he mentioned something that it was an adjustment, and that was the most controversial thing you heard on the matter. He deserves, to me, just a lot of credit for the culture that they've built there, as does Masai Ujiri, of course. Yeah, well, obviously, like Masai Ujiri, he's the guy who put together that bench. And then one more thing is they're, they're within a couple of games of the Rockets and the Warriors for best record in the league, and the only team that has a better point differential is the Rockets. So I echo... <laughs> what you just said that that he probably deserves to be in that coach of the year discussion um and I don't, I don't think i've heard anybody bring up his name so i think you're right there the m- more controversial pick here might be putting the cavaliers second over the celtics for me it was twofold the cavaliers we haven't seen enough with them and their new guys yes they won against oklahoma city and boston but it does take time to integrate all these different faces, especially when you're not going to have a training camp, you have the sporadic practice. At the same time, if you just look at what they did 
around the trade deadline at its core, they changed out a collection of non-shooters, underachievers, and an aging vet with Channing Fry for youth, athleticism, length, and additional spacing. That's just perfect to play with LeBron James. The other thing for me is they're not on the same level or even close on this distrust meter as the Timberwolves, but I'm not... I don't believe in the Boston Celtics as much anymore. They have the league's best defense. They have what is probably the league's second or third best coach with Brad Stevens. That That's great, but they're 28th in points scored per 100 possession since January 1st. And while they've been better offensively down the stretch of close games during this time, they need that additional face-up scorer, that guy who can create from scratch for them, other than Kyrie Irving. And not just to make it life easier for him in crunch time, but also so that you can not have to worry about staggering the minutes of him and Al Horford. Part of the intrigue for having both these guys on your roster is getting them to play at the same time. Jason Tatum will be that guy who can run units on his own. Maybe it will be Jalen Brown too. But when either one of them plays without Horford or Irving on the floor, the Celtics have a league-worst offensive rating. That offensive rating gets a lot better when both Tatum and Brown are on the floor without Irving or Horford, but that combination is seen just 62 minutes in that span. I don't know where the offense then is going to come from outside of Irving when you just need to get that bucket. It makes the Celtics just a little bit too predictable for me. And again, Brown and Tatum, one of them at least is at least a year away, but before they're that player. The Celtics will be looking at what they've done this season. You sprinkle in Gordon Hayward. To, to this equation, that's everything they're missing, but they don't have it right now. And and that's where I kind of see them seeding status to Cleveland. Yeah, we've, uh, I think I've brought this up a couple times on the show, but we did that episode of, um, gosh, Basket Brawl. Isn't that what it was called? Yep. With Brian Sampson and, and we both. <laughs> I, I think I predicted them to be around 40 wins. This was right after the Gordon Hayward injury. So we were like adjusting our expectations in the the post Hayward world for the Celtics. Um, and obviously I was wrong about that. They were, they were incredible for a good month or two right after that injury. But it always felt like, it, I mean, it just seems somewhat unsustainable. We were relying so much on a first year player and a second year player who both seemed to just be shooting lights out. Tatum of course was, was definitely shooting lights out. And I think we're starting to see a little bit of that regression. Um, I think defense has so much to do with coaching that they'll probably be fine on that end for the rest of the way. Um, but I'm, I'm with you. I am concerned about the offense. Tatum, he shot 50% from three from the start of the season all the way through Christmas. And the Celtics won 73% of their games in that stretch. Since then, he's shooting 30% from three. And Boston's winning percentage is under 60 in that stretch. Um, I, I, so I think if you're relying so much on unsustainable shooting, it's, it was bound to come down at some point. And this isn't to say that I'm like I'm completely out on the Celtics. I still think they're a good team. Um, it shouldn't be seen as like a huge knock on them that they're going to get passed up by LeBron James, the the best player in the history of the game. Um, I just it just felt like that crazy level that they were on for a couple months. It just it could not have continued, and it really has. It's already come down a little bit from that. Yeah, and then I, I think just those additions with Cleveland, they'll, they'll probably pay off 
uh, at some point, even if there's an extensive learning curve. The wild card here would be how much do the Cavaliers actually care about getting to the number two seed, but it's it's close enough between them and Boston right now. Three games in the loss column where I think that it could, or, it could organically shift. And I think some of those young guys you mentioned will increase the care factor a little bit. That's um, true, too. They haven't, they haven't been through the same sort of monotonous regular season grind that LeBron's been through for mm-hmm. the last few years. It's a different... I think I think they bring a different sort of feel and excitement. Guys like Jordan Clarkson and Larry Nance, they've never gotten a chance to be on a winning team. So they're going to they're going to I think relish um what it feels like to be in that sort of an atmosphere. The other guy when his name first came up as a target for the Cavs, George Hill, I just thought that makes infinitely more sense to me than Isaiah Thomas and obviously Derrick Rose. Um he's just his best years in the NBA is when he's been alongside a ball dominant wing player. He was great playing off Paul George in Indiana. He was great playing off Gordon Hayward in Utah. And obviously LeBron James is better than both of those guys. And he, he is just, uh, he's perfect for that role. It's just sort of a steady veteran. He'll hit the catch and through shoot threes that LeBron throws out to him. Uh, he's, he's lengthy. He can guard ones and twos. I really like all of the additions they made. I'm missing one. I, it's uh, Rodney Hood. I, I think he makes sense too, especially if he's just coming off the bench and hitting catch and shoot threes too. I, I, all four of those guys just seem like perfect fits to me. Yeah, and Hood is—he's uh, not—he's not Kyrie Irving, but he gives you that off the. He can get his own shot, shot yeah. for sure. Yeah, and it's better just because he's six seven, six eight around there. That's his shot creation is going to be. A little bit more valuable than Isaiah Thomas is, and especially, especially because Isaiah he, Thomas wasn't playing well. Yeah, and I was going to say if he's consistently going up against bench units, I think there's a chance he takes J.R. Smith's spot at some point. But if he doesn't, um, that shot creation against second units is it's going to be pretty valuable for them. I think. Who do you have? This is now. This is kind of where things get interesting because really, even if our order is wrong, no one is catching the top three in the East right now. It's just not happening. Yeah, I don't you, think so. Who did you put for number four? I have the Bucks moving up a couple spots. Um, they're currently sixth, and they are one game behind fourth place Washington. So I have them sneaking up to fourth. I think they have the best individual player of any of the teams that we'll talk about from here on out. Um, I, I, I think you can make an, an argument that Giannis has been, what, a top top three to five player this season? Um, for sure. And then you you texted me earlier today. I didn't even realize this. Their defensive rating since they fired Jason Kidd is second in the NBA. Is that good? Um, <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs> that was that was the thing that was really exciting about this team two or three years ago. They had all these lengthy players, um, and it was going to be defense that was going to lead this young, ex- athletic lengthy team into the future and then it just kind of disappeared over the last couple of seasons and I think it's that's been talked about a lot um but if they're clicking defensively and Giannis continues to do what Giannis does um and plus they now have Jabari Parker back um he's still sort of getting his basketball legs under him I think based on what I've seen in the first couple games that he's played this season but if he can give them a little bit more of an offensive punch um this team is suddenly becoming pretty interesting to me even even before Parker came back when they had Giannis Middleton and Bledsoe and I'll even throw Henson in there on the floor together they were pretty 
dang good. So obviously you add Jabari Parker to that. You get a little bit deeper. The defense is playing so much better than it did under Jason Kidd. I, I think there's a lot of ingredients to suggest that this team is is rising right now. The issue with the Bucks, and maybe it's not an issue once you get to the playoffs. They're just they're they're top heavy. Their bench still isn't dependable. Having a healthy Brogdon and Della Vadova will help now that Parker's back because it just it kind of even if you're not, are they going to start Parker eventually? Maybe, and then that presumably shifts Tony Snell to your second unit. Either way, you just you have more options. But they've been getting outscored by twelve point seven points per hundred possessions with Parker on the floor. His three point clip is down. His shooting percentage inside three minutes. Like is how down. many minutes though? Like right, and that's the issue. But if he minutes, don't, maybe? if he doesn't get his legs under him, that just creates kind of a well, not kind of. It creates a, a bona fide issue for Prunty because what do you do when you're in crunch time? Like your closing lineup should probably be Bledsoe, Giannis, Middleton, Parker, and Snell. I would say maybe if you want to throw Brogdon in there instead of Snell. And if you're not doing well with Parker on the floor, you can't play him during the most important minutes. And then how does that help you in the playoffs? That's why I'm kind of skeptical of them moving up that high. With all of that said, Giannis Antetokounmpo, as you alluded to already, top three or top five player, their defense has gotten better. And this is this struck me. All seven of the Bucks' most used lineups are outscoring opponents by 8.9 points per 100 possessions or more. Five of those seven uh, yeah. are a plus thirteen or better. That's crazy. That's that's nuts. And and then that's season long. Yeah, that's for the entire wow. season. So like that's that's incredible. Where it just kind of starts to turn for me, I do not have them fourth. Is they have one of the harder schedules in the Eastern Conference to finish fourth hardest according to PlayoffStatus.com. And I think though who I put forth and this was the risk and I'm just higher on them for the closing stretch is the Sixers. They have been the best defensive team in the league since Christmas. And the only team posting a better net rating since Christmas, Golden State. That's incredible to me. They're third overall in defense. If you want to remove the Christmas filter Joel Embiid, to me, should be basically a shoo-in for Defensive Player of the Year. It's, it's him or Al Horford in my book. I know some people want Rudy Gobert to creep into it despite the missed time. People are making a case for Kevin Durant, which is just, it's funny, and it, it still proves that block shots apparently mean a ton. And th- <laughs> there'll be default picks for Gray- Draymond Green, which is fine. But I like I, they have the easiest schedule in the league, too, to end the season. That's, a, that's the other thing. And this has been a, a, an even bigger development for me, is that over their last 20 games, they're a net plus when Ben Simmons plays without Joel Embiid. That's not yeah, an that's insignificant a huge, sample size. Yeah. And so, uh, yes, I don't trust their bench, which is 29th in usage and dead last in offensive efficiency. And it's, I think it's 28th or 29th in three-point percentage as well. Bellinelli helps that a little bit, but he's not the guy you want to go get a shot. That would be Markel Fultz, who probably won't play again this season either. Still, 17 of the Sixers' final 27 games come against under 500 teams, and 10 of those 17 matchups include the East bottom five teams. I just feel like their schedule is so favorable. We've been here with the Sixers before, kind of touting how good they are, only to see them fall off, but I think they've turned 
that corner, not where you would pick them to rival Cleveland or Boston or, or Toronto necessarily, but I think they could climb up to fourth. They're only two games back. The Wizards don't have John Wall, and so I have them at four with the Bucks at five. I just that, those are my case for the four and five. I don't know who you put fifth. I'm going to take the 76ers fifth. Um, oh, all right. So we just kind of have those flip flopped, and I agree with everything you said. I actually didn't know their schedule was that week uh, for the rest of the season, so that's that's pretty persuasive. Um, they're starting five. Uh, ben Simmons, J.J. Redick, Robert Covington, Dario Saric, and Joel Embiid has been one of the best five-man lineups in the league all season. And and really what it's come down to for them is the bench, and you mentioned it already. I do think Bellinelli helps for sure. Um, he's, a, he's a competent NBA wing who's been on some really good teams, and he's played big roles on good teams. Um, so I think he'll help them quite a bit. But if they're going to be playing bottom-feeding teams like you just laid out, I think that starting lineup is just going to continue to destroy people. And I <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if they rose to fourth, as you sort of laid out already. Um, yeah, like I said earlier, any any sort of order for, for the rest of these teams wouldn't shock me. But yeah, right now I have the 76ers fifth. So we just kind of have the inverse at four and five. Who do you have at number six? I would love, by the way, I would love that playoff matchup. Sixers that would be fun, yeah. Two very exciting, mostly young teams. I've got the Wizards sixth. Uh, you mentioned that they've been without John Wall, and this is more sort of small sample theater, but their starting lineup with John Wall is really good. Wall, Shocker. Beal, <laughs> Porter, yeah. Morris and Gortat. They're plus 6.4 points per 100 possessions, so solid. Um, if you swap out Wall and put in Sadoransky, who's been starting in Wall's place lately, the net rating goes from that 6.4 I just mentioned all the way up to 21.2. Oh, whoa. And it's in a few, I think it's in at least like two or 300 minutes. Like it's not a tiny sample, um, but it's still the kind of sample that, you know, they get beat bad a couple games that could come way back down to earth. But that jump is pretty crazy from 6.4 to 21.2. And I'm not saying that John Wall is a better player than Thomas, or I mean that, that, that uh, Thomas Sadoransky is a better player than John Wall, obviously. Um, but sometimes there's just, I mean, having a competent three-point shooter out there, maybe that helps the spacing a little bit. Uh, maybe he's more of a ball mover than, than John Wall is, who's more of a guy who's going to control the ball until he makes the final pass for an assist. Um, so I still, I still think they're really good and I, I was tempted to put them fifth and I think they're currently fourth, right? Yeah, they're, they're in fourth right now. So I wouldn't be surprised if they held on to that. Um, even with John Wall out, I just think, you know, Bradley Beal is really good. Obviously Otto Porter is, has been fantastic for two seasons now. And I think Sadoransky is like, to me, he's a starting level NBA point guard. I think all season he's averaging like around 12 and 13 points, five or six assists, five or six rebounds per 36 minutes. Like he's always good when he gets out there. He's been a, a 40% three-point shooter all season. So I don't think they lose a ton. It sounds crazy just coming out of my mouth, actually. Um, they're still very good with him in the lineup. That's what I'll say. Because I, I, I shouldn't say they don't lose a ton by losing John Wall, because I think they probably do. Um, 
I'm mostly positive, so it's it's not really explaining why I have them sliding two spots. I think I would rely more on on what I think is good from Milwaukee and Philly to explain that. But yeah, I've got Washington sixth. I don't trust the Wizards, even kind of. They're my Timberwolves of the East, almost. I, their starting lineup is always going to be really good. I, I Their bench, I just don't know how you place too much stock in it because head coach Scott Brooks is never going to stagger John Wall and Bradley Beal in mass. And in the time, Sandoransky's their best option, by the way, to lead those units without Wall or Beal. And on the season, when he plays for the entire stretch, he's been better since Wall's been injured and then he's played without Beal. So then he's effectively played without both of them. But it's only been for like six or seven minutes. But on the season... In the 341 minutes Sadoransky's played without Wall and Beal on the court, the Wizards have a 98.6 offensive rating, which is terrible. Yeah. Not and good, yeah. The Wizards also have the hardest remaining schedule in the league, according to PlayoffStatus.com, with Wall not expected to come back until mid-March or the end of March, if his six- to eight-week timetable holds true. I don't know how—they'll be lucky to hold on to number four— I don't. I don't think they're going to be number five. I have the, or excuse me, I don't have them at number six either. I have the, uh, the Pacers there. I their offense has been spectacular. Victor Oladipo, bona fide All Star, very deep and versatile front court. Miles Turner's remains a low key beast on the offensive end. Uh, Demantis Sabonis is still kind of his economical self. Darren Collison, when he's healthy again, that's going to be a huge boon for them. Their schedule is slightly easier. Than the Wizards, um, I, I believe they have the ninth hardest schedule remaining in the league compared to the Wizards at number one. That kind of turns it for me. And similar to Minnesota, I like don't trust Washington's offense overall. They're third in the frequency of attempts that come from long mid-range and 28th in percentage of looks that come at the rim. That's not a harbinger of an elite offense. And they're not really an elite offense. They're 12th in points scored per 100 possessions on the season. 11th, excuse me, I'm wrong. Tied for 11 and 12 with them and the Clippers. My issue, though, is is that going to continue in the playoffs, which is irrelevant to this conversation, but then is it going to continue against the league's hardest schedule? Probably not. And they don't have the defensive depth or identity to let that carry them either. And that's not, again, that's not to say that the Pacers do. The Pacers are not a good defensive team. And I think you can also argue that the Pacers' shot profile is equally shaky. I just, when you look at John Wall's health, when you look at the bench of the Pacers, which just comes off a lot deeper, having a guy like Corey Joseph come off the pine or being able to get spot minutes with the starters, that's huge. And I, I just see them kind of, they're going to outlast the Wizards. And what that means in the playoffs, I don't know. If the Wizards are at full strength, I think you kind of still pick them to be the bigger threat in the Eastern Conference. But right now, I I just don't see how the Wizards are even going to end up kind of in, in the top five in the East. And I wouldn't be shocked to see them tumble a little bit further. If I had more faith in any of those teams that were below them, I, I might even consider putting them at, at eighth, not out of the playoffs, but at eighth. That would be quite the slide uh, from fourth to eighth. Do you well, think, to uh, be fair, they, they're like, I'm, they're, they're only 3.5 games ahead 
of eighth place. Four games yeah, in the loss true. column. Um, who, who do you take, Bradley Beal or Victor Oladipo? Victor Oladipo. I think I do too. So that obviously plays in your favor. I was thinking about this while you were talking. Um, I was doing like the matchups in my head sort of thing. Which which team do I like more between these two? Because I have the Pacers seventh. Um, so we so reversed right, again. You had Wizards yeah, at right six. Yeah, where you had yep. them. Um, yeah, I think there's a pretty strong argument for the Pacers. I think that would be staying. Yeah, they're fifth right now. So we both have them falling. Um, that's another team that I, – so I did a similar thing with them as I did with um, Wall and Sadoransky. This is just kind of interesting to me. When Oladipo and Turner are on the floor – uh, Indiana's outscoring opponents by five and a half points per hundred possessions, and when Oladipo and Sabonis are on the floor, they're outscoring opponents by eleven point eight points per hundred possessions. Um, apropos of nothing, when we talk about <laughs> whether or not they'll be better than the Wizards, but maybe that just speaks to their depth a little bit. I think I would probably well, trust their second unit a little bit more than Washington's, and like I already said, I think Oladipo is probably better than Beal. But I think when we get into the conversation of like second best player versus second best player, um, I'm probably going to lean towards Otto Porter over Miles Turner or whoever else we want to say is Indiana's best, second best player right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think you already mentioned that Washington's a little bit top heavy, so I think the rosters even out a little bit if we go further down for Indiana. But I I, I just think all the talent at the top for Washington is what's kind of given them the edge for me. Two fun things. So when you look at their bench net ratings, the Pacers are 16th, minus 1.6 per 100 possessions. The Wizards are 17th, minus 1.7. Oh, wow. So these teams are close. And the other thing for me is the starting lineup that the Pacers are using now without Collison, it just seems to have—you're putting in Joseph for Collison, essentially. When you're going to play Bogdanovich and Turner at the same time, Joseph is almost a better fit for that lineup because Bogdanovich is not a good defender, especially if you're going to put him up against wings. Thaddeus Young is fine. Turner's not good yet. He can be, he has the verticality down around the rim. He can be a solid rim protector that way, but he doesn't do much else. else. He's shown flashes in space. But that five-man combination, their new starting lineup, not going to be their permanent. I'm assuming they'll go back if Collison returns healthy. But those five, they've played in 21 games this season, through which the Pacers are 14 and 7. And in the 118 minutes that they've played, 112.8 offensive rating, 98.2 defensive rating. So a net rating of 14.6. That's a good starting lineup, too. And I don't think we can discount the argument like you just said. Their best player right now, since Wall's out for the Wizards, is better than Washington's best player, who is Beal. I definitely understand your case, though. Porter, as Washington's second-best player now, is better than what Indiana has at number two. But let's go deeper than that. Even though the bench net ratings are so close, the third-best player on the Wizards is now who? Is it Kelly Oubre? Is it Morris? It it might even be Sadoransky. Right. And once you start talking about who's the third-best player on the Pacers, is it Turner? Is it Joseph? Is it Thaddeus Young? Is it Bogdanovich? And the the list just goes on and on. And it seems more, even if you want to give the nod to the Wizards' third best or think that Kelly Oubre, when you look at his matchup, however far down the ladder he is, let's say he wins that against Indiana. They just seem to have more answers than 
Washington. And they did get, I believe, um, unless I'm mistaken, they do have, which will be interesting to see how they use him. But Glenn Robinson III is supposed to be back against the Hawks on Friday. Oh, yeah, and that's I forgot just, about that. That's yeah. some extra wing depth for them. And if once again, once Collison comes back, he was out for three weeks, two to three weeks, although I don't understand this timetable. He had arthroscopic left knee surgery and only two to three weeks on that. He should be coming back fairly soon as well. And that that's just huge for them. So, again, in the playoffs, I, if you're going to have the Wizards at full strength, they're more dangerous to me than Indiana. But looking at the closing schedules... I don't trust Washington on offense more than I don't trust Indiana. I, I, I think I have to just give the – it might be a slight edge, but I still have to give it to the Pacers. One more point before we move on that kind of like goes against where I picked. Um, but I, Oladipo has been better than John Wall this season too. Well, that's, that's actually um, also fair. Yeah. So number eight, th- I think – so now we're going to start eliminating teams. Um, I think I think we might have a difference of opinion here too. I've got the Pistons eighth. Um, they have they, they were real good when they first picked up Blake Griffin, um, but I think they've slid a little bit lately. So yeah, they've lost three of their last four after winning the first few after getting Griffin. Um, they're currently in ninth, and they're a game and a half behind the eighth place Heat. My reasoning for putting them in, I don't know how much Reggie Jackson helps them, but I think he does help them a little bit. If nothing else, it adds to the depth. We've talked about that a bit with some other teams. Mm-hmm. Um, even just pushing guys who are currently starting back to the bench, sometimes that can help your depth a little bit. But my biggest thing is it's it's over 100 minutes already, but it's still not a huge sample size. But when Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond are both on the floor – they're outscoring opponents by seven points per hundred possessions. And when they're both on the floor, Griffin's averaging almost seven assists per 36. I, I think that duo is clicking very well, maybe even a little bit better than I expected. And although Griffin's overall numbers are kind of down this season, at least in terms of efficiency, um, I just think of the teams that we have left to talk about or the teams that can like seriously make a run for eighth. He's probably the the best pure talent um, of this bunch. So that's, I'm, I'm just kind of leaning towards talent winning out in this case. And Andre Drummond has been insane this season too. Just, um, you know, box plus minus has loved him all year. The passing that we've talked about several times on this podcast, I think has changed him uh, completely changed who he is as a player. I, I think those two together are a very, very formidable duo. I think they're going to win just enough games to, to edge out the heat. I don't really have a good rebuke for you, and I went with the Heat at number eight over the Pistons, other than I just trust Eric Spoelstra more than I do whatever the Pistons are doing. The Heat have the third easiest schedule in the league to finish the year, according to playoffstatus.com. Maybe or maybe that maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't. Their offense has been a collective poop show this year. <laughs> and they've been struggling a lot lately. They're one in seven over their last eight games. I actually did the filter before to see how both these teams have been performing from the Blake Griffin trade. And Miami's 22nd in net rating compared to ninth for Detroit. And that just shows you how much of gut feeling. And the Heat during this time, by the way, 27th in offensive efficiency. Uh, so I get what you're saying. I and, and also, this is another knock against Miami. But cleaning the glass has this nifty tool 
that shows which teams are outperforming their point differential most. So, like, they're on pace to win more games than their point it's differential. Got to be Miami. Suggests. Miami ranks um, sixth. Do you want to know? Do you want to know who I found I oddly enough gonna... ranks number one? Go ahead. Cleveland. Like they should, be, their record should be worse. Yeah, they're a plus that six win sense. differential. They're only yeah. Sacramento's number two, which is hysterical because they're going to win less than twenty games anyway. <laughs> they're playing like a thirteen win team according to Clean the Glass. So I, again, I get all the knocks against uh, against the the Heat and Detroit. By comparison, has basically been performing up to snuff of its point differential. I, I could see it, and it might be a coin toss here, but I like Miami's shot profile a little bit better. I like that team, and I don't want to tie any of this to Dwayne Wade, but I like the options they have down the stretch of close games with Dwayne Wade in the fold more. Maybe they play him, maybe they don't in crunch time. I don't know how valuable it'll be for the Pistons uh, in in, cl- in the clutch when they need to get shots from scratch. What are you going to? When Reggie Jackson comes back, perhaps that helps. But it's You're going take- to that bull in a china shop post-up move from Blake Griffin. Is it even the post? You probably have to bring him out and hope that he faces up, at least until Reggie Jackson comes back. But he'll, then He'll crash into somebody at some point. Right, and then you go back to Reggie Jackson's return. He's going to need some time to kind of acclimate himself. And if you're the Pistons and you're chasing a playoff spot, maybe you just don't play him as much. There are a lot of moving parts there, and I just I trust M- Miami a, a little bit more. Their, their defense has been really good at points this season. And again, having Coach Spo having just a couple of extra different options now with Dwayne Wade down the stretch of games where you can turn to a variety of guys in Richardson. If Tyler Johnson's going to be healthy, Gron Dragic, who can just try and go get you a bucket, even James Johnson. It's it's not a good team, to be sure. But when you look at how much easier their schedule is compared to Detroit's, and just rankings-wise, it's substantial, even though the winning percentages of their remaining opponents are, are still semi kind of close. I just think it's going to favor the heat a little bit more. So I had them eight and the Pistons number nine. So we were just kind of flip-flopping from four all the way through. The, so, so we both have the Hornets 10, right? Yes. I, I The dare to be great pick would be to pick, <laughs> would be to pick the Hornets to be number you know, eight. They have a better point differential than the heat right now. I've, oh, do they? I didn't even yeah. notice that. Well, so the other thing that kind of works in their favor, so in the final three minutes of games in which they're trailing or it's tied by three points or less, they're 3-15. and 15. So again, they're not leading in these situations, but to be within three points or tied inside three minutes or less, 3-15. and 15. If you turned, let's say, five of those 15 losses into wins... They now have 29 wins in our half game basically out of the playoffs right now. That would be – there's not enough time because as of right now, they're five games in the loss column back of the Heat, and you would need a helping hand from the Pistons as well who are in front of them at number nine. They're four games in the loss column in front. But they would be an interesting just, just dare-to-be-great pick. Like, here we go. We don't trust the Heat or the Pistons, and the Hornets have been so bad in crunch time that if things – they have to go their way a little bit more at some point, and if that happens, they could end up in the playoffs. I won't rule it out. I wouldn't pick it, but that would be that would be a very interesting Marco Bellinelli dance right there. Sam Cassell dance, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I like the Marco Bellinelli dance. That would certainly be interesting. Kemba Walker's been fantastic all season long, and when their starters are on, they're good too. I, I think the two-man lineup of Walker and, and Dwight has been 
a, a huge plus net rating wise all season. Right now, Miami's on pace for 42 wins. That's the team that's currently in eighth. So you figure Charlotte would have to get to at least 40 wins to to have a shot at eighth, right? Mm-hmm. 16 and nine doesn't sound insane down the stretch for them. I mean, obviously, it would be an improvement over what they've been all season, but it's not it's not something that would like blow me away. The other thing with them, they do have the second easiest schedule in the league remaining. Again, according to PlayoffStatus.com. I would have to look at how many of their opponents are under 500 going in, but if the collective winning percentage of your opponents down the stretch is 46%, you have to imagine you're going to play a bunch of sub-5, 100 opponents. They're, thir- and what- they're 13 and 6 against teams with losing oh, records. Wow. Am I reading? Yeah, have, I'm reading uh- that right. That's not, you know, that's not... It could happen, but it would take... You need two teams to basically kind of plummet off a cliff. And when I was going to look- ask, if, do you have Miami and Detroit's remaining... Uh, winning percentage of their remaining teams. Yeah, the Heat are at forty six percent, so that's not too so much higher. The and then the Pistons are at forty around forty nine. So, oh, so they all have favorable. The, yeah, they're all favorable, and that's why I don't think you could pick the Hornets. At the same time, I, I could see the Pistons going through kind of a little bit of a slump. We saw what can happen. Uh, the game against the Clippers a little bit when you're going up against more versatile small switchy teams that loss to atlanta was just not good that's not okay and they got hammered by new orleans it's and then they barely beat atlanta on valentine's day it's just i could they would be the more likely team to fall off but again when you look at the strength of the schedules i don't know i would never pick the hornets but it's an interesting anecdote to consider because it's not it's not outside the realm of possibility i guess I wouldn't be surprised. I almost want to say that they could surpass the Pistons. I'm not ready to go there. But with Reggie Jackson coming back, depending on how that dynamic works between him, Drummond, and Griffin, uh, it, it could they, they could wind up falling off. And then maybe if they do kind of distance themselves from that eight spot, maybe Van Gundy's wants to play some of the younger guys or just chase a little bit better of a draft pick or something. I'm with you. I don't think it's like completely impossible that they could get back into that race. So let's recap. I have Toronto, Cleveland, Boston, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Washington, Indiana, Detroit, Miami, and Charlotte. I have the Raptors at number one, Cavs number two, Celtics number three, Sixers number four, Bucks number five, Pacers number six, Wizards number seven, Heat number eight, Pistons number nine, Hornets number ten. The East was easier to project than the West, for sure, without question. Yeah, I think... Especially the back part of the, like trying to figure out who's going to take those last couple spots in the West is there's, brutal. Yeah, there, right now there's like five teams for three spots basically in the West. Yeah, and in the East, and we basically three came down to two, two for yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. You know, that's really it. We flip flopped, and it it does feel like the top seven in the East they're all guaranteed to punch their playoff ticket, irrespective of their seating. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty confident in all seven of those two. We do have a couple minutes, so I wanted to ask you really quick what you thought about the news with the Hornets that they're not going to renew general manager Rich Cho's contract. Michael Jordan launched uh, Mitch Kupchak, former Lakers general manager, as a replacement. You also had the Hornets come out and say they'd love for Kemba Walker to retire with them. What do you see happening for them this offseason? Do you think they're going to end up trading Kemba? And if they do, did they kind of fuck up? Because why not just move him at the trade deadline? I'm very 
just confused by this team's future. Perhaps they're trying to see what happens at the end of the season. Maybe they'll finish on a hot streak. But as of right now, in guaranteed salary, they have a hundred more than $117.9 million on the books next year, which brings them, according to salary cap projections, around $5.1 million within the luxury tax. And that's for a team True. that probably isn't going to make the playoffs. Yeah, I guess it makes sense that they're moving on from Rich Cho. I like, I mean, I'm not as down on Nicholas Batum as some other people seem to be, and I, I still kind of like Marvin Williams. But both, I think, are pretty easy to say overpays um, at this point. And I I think it's cool that they want to hang on to Kemba Walker. I, I would guess they'd probably try to trade some of those other big contracts first, but obviously Kemba Walker, I think, would be easier to move than those other guys. Mitch Kupchak thing is interesting. Obviously, he had plenty of success with the Lakers, but it's sort of a what have you done for me lately league, and he he was the one that was responsible for that Timofey Mozgov contract. So, um, you know, I get the North Carolina connection with him and Jordan, um, so it would make sense. And I it, obviously there's a track record of success, like I already mentioned. Um, but yeah, it's a super interesting uh, situation that they're in going forward. Obviously, with this team that's currently locked in, it's it's not one that's going to contend for a title ever. So something has to be shaken up. And not just with the front office, which is already happening. Something's got to be shaken up on that roster. I agree with you. I think they need to move Kemba Walker to get off one of those contracts. And I think that's ultimately what will happen this summer. But we'll see. Yeah, I, I guess that that's probably true. Um, you probably could attach one of those guys and, and be able to do it that way um all right so we've gone through west and east if you want to go back and and hear where our west predictions were just go through the podcast feed on apple or blog talk or on they're all on nba math too um you can find dan on twitter at dan favelli f-a-v-a-l-e i'm at andrew d bailey the show is at hardwood knox and the sponsor i already mentioned that's nba underscore math on Twitter. Uh, like Dan said at the start of the show, we really appreciate ratings, uh, reviews, and tell your friends if they're into the NBA. And even if they're not into the NBA, they need to go subscribe to Hardwood Knox because if they're not and they listen to us, they will be. Uh, that's, that's the Andrew Bailey guarantee right there. So until next time, I'll leave you with a shout out to Bino Udri. Lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to make refreshing changes to your kitchen and bath. We do it right, too, with up to 40% off select kitchen and bath essentials during the final days of our Refresh for Less kitchen and bath event. That's up to 40% off faucets, vanities, showerheads, and more. For kitchen and bath updates that keep you within budget, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 3-6. See store for details, U.S. only.